0: I hope that truth and reconciliation becomes a part of what happens on Turtle Island in a large way, but we can also, um, by engaging forgiveness in small circles um, and then rippling that outwards, we can also not wait for the government to do it, but, but do it ourselves and find our way to be able to work with each other. You can be messy as hell. You can mess up your racism, your transphobia can can fly, and people will like hold you with compassion in it and like help you shift gears. Um, that we need both spaces, and we grow in both spaces. Citizen Podcast.
1: Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. Jacoby Ballard is a social justice educator, yoga teacher, and author of the new book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. Jacoby defines queer dharma as a practice that interrogates systems of power and seeks liberation for all. In our conversation, we talk about the intersections of yoga and capitalism and white supremacy and cultural appropriation, while also returning to the wisdom of yoga, that the yoga practice as it was intended provides a visionary pathway forward to a liberated life. Jacobi invites us to be in a critical and courageous inquiry around how to resist the straight dharma that we have been fed by dominant culture and embrace the truth of our interdependence and collective well-being. This conversation is juicy and essential. Check it out. Jacoby Ballard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carrie. So great to have you here. I was reflecting um, today on, well, I haven't seen you since a pandemic ago, which is... I think it's been a couple years and you've been busy. Not only have you um have you had a book baby, but you've given birth to a family in that mm-hmm. time. How how are you? How does it feel? What's life like now?
0: It is full. I have 7 hours of childcare 5 days a week, which is a blessing, but also, you know, that means I have less than a 30 hour work week. Cause I also have to take a shower and like do my practice or do any feed myself <laughs> in those 35 hours. Um, so in some ways that's really good, you know, and divesting from like productivity, but also, um, yeah, it also means that my non-work time is work time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It's funny because I was going to ask you about you know, what I've learned and I haven't given birth to a a child, like I have, I don't have a family in that particular kind of way, but I obviously just gave birth to this book as, as did you. And it taught me a lot about boundaries and, uh, and, and reflected a lot back to me about like my commitment and addiction to productivity and Mm -hmm. also what was expected of me by other people and by dominant Mm -hmm. culture. And I'm just wondering, like, when you were talking, I was like, Oh, and I don't even have a child (laughs) to like reinforce that boundary. So like has, have boundaries, um, become like a a more, you know, fierce practice for you in that time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not available before 9am ever and four to 7pm every day. I'm just with Gigi and, um, sometimes that's with my partner and sometimes it's not. Um, Uh, but it's just like very not negotiable. And I know things don't go well. If I try to imagine that, like, I can have a phone call meeting before 9am, like (laughs) that doesn't go well for me and Gigi. That doesn't go well for me and the meeting person.
1: That's a hard no. (laughs) (laughs) Has it crystallized for you? Um, I found it really helpful in, um, I don't know what the word is, but, um, making me confront what matters most to me as opposed to like what I think other people want from me. Like, has that, has that Chris, I would imagine like, you're like, I have a family now, like hard nose are like everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Boundaries are firm. Um, and like, I don't, you know, I, I would imagine like there's not as much conflict because it's like clear.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a greater sense of what my priorities are and um, what is worth those 35 hours a a week that I have because it's so limited. So if I feel anything in my body that's like any crumble of a no, then it's just the answer is no.
1: Oh, my God. I think that should be like a workshop that you host of like how to say no, (laughs) you know, because what you're describing is like a practice of discernment, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. Um I want to talk to you about the the journey of writing a book. Sure. Because I know that we both share a yoga practice, um, and and we're both like deeply engaged in transformational work and like journey work. And I was floored by how much I was changed by <laughs> that process. Um, of like excavating and 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 clarifying, um, and um, and expressing, and I'm curious like what you learned about yourself, on um, you know along the way on that journey.
0: Yeah, well, I spent from beginning to write the book and to the publish date was about eight years, and that long-term investment I think was really important. And it also meant that, you know, what felt really important to say when I was 32 is no longer as important (laughs) to say. So in my revisions, I've been like much more uh, present to uh, and intentional with the book in the last year or two. Um, And so there's been a lot of letting go of like what I no longer need to say or, and also a clarification of, of, what feels really important and what was it, what has been important for eight years and is still important. Um, I also well, think and you
1: probably changed so much in that time.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. I was just running my own health center and trying to like grapple with like creating a space of social justice kind of, as like a little refuge <laughs> in the world, and then and then in the last eight years have like done much more national work, um, and have been much more seen and witnessed. And so there's there's a vulnerability and a courage in that, and also um, a lack of rootedness too. That like being in Brooklyn as a business owner <laughs> uh, requires really being there for it.
1: Inherent to the name, third root, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you look back now on those eight years, um, do you feel like your journey prepared you to write this book?
0: Yeah. I mean, so much of the book is about my journey. Um, and I think as I've been teaching both in like local settings and bigger like national conferences, um, and offerings uh i've gotten to see what resonates and what what's useful for people and so the, for the whole first half of the book is the heart teachings and those have come to be the teachings that i live by and also the teachings that allow me to be in deep relationship with others
1: and the second half of the book i would imagine is is what you came up against as you put yourself out into the world. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that, the second half of the book, Queering Yoga, is what I started with. Um, and it came from a place of rage and uh, being fed up <laughs> with mainstream yoga um, and all of its harm and mistake and not living the teachings. The um, Yeah, and my... my uh, disbelief in that or just being deeply disappointed and that. And, um, so I started writing it because so many people in mainstream yoga were asking me, you know, I've taught queer and trans yoga since 2005. And in that time, affinity based yoga classes were not a thing. Now they're like, they're not like popular, but they're more common and understood, especially since the freedom summer last year. Um, but so much of what I came up against was, aren't you being exclusive? Aren't you perpetuating division? Like, what can we all just be together in one yoga practice space? And so I started writing about it, and it started as why queer and trans yoga?
1: <laughs> Speak more specifically to to sort of like um, the the dissonance that that inspired you to write this particular section of the book. Um And, and, and what in particular you experienced, um, in, in the yoga world, like what were you seeing that was actually like causing the sacred rage that you described?
0: Yeah, I was, um, when I moved to New York city, I was newly out as trans and I was going to a lot of yoga classes just to familiarize myself with like, what's out there. This is New York city. There's a lot here. Let me dig in. And, So many times I was misgendered or there was I was in the classroom and people would be like, hi, ladies or men's bodies are like this and women's bodies are like this. Men's bodies do these things. Women's bodies do these things. Sacred masculine, sacred feminine. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And it was just so it was so it was like on repeat. Um, And so one of my very first public classes that I offered in New York was at the New York LGBT Center. Um, starting as a spe- specifically a class for trans people, a yoga class for trans people. And there wasn't enough trans people that showed up. So then we expanded it. Um, and then that became, once I started third group, that became a, a, twice a week offering, uh, that we made too. Um, and so part of me creating that was just out of my own pain and like not wanting other queer and trans people to, um, experience that in a space that they come to heal, um, Part of it was also knowing in queer trans community that we, we need spaces that are heartfelt and that are embodied. Most of the queer spaces that I had previously been involved in were political or about cruising and dating and getting together, which are all wonderful. And there was a gap in the embodiment and, and, and heart space. Um, and then in the, in the yoga world, as I started to, to teach this, at first, it was just like unknown, right? Because it was at the LGBT center. It wasn't at a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as as third route third route began, uh, that's when people w- would write to us and be like, "Queer and trans yoga is, you know, at the perfect time for me. I'm straight, but I have queer friends. Can I come?" Whoa. <laughs> And we'd have to be like, no, honey, there's 24 other classes that you can come to.
1: Yeah. I Can we talk about that part? Because yeah. I want to just acknowledge and appreciate how, um, how out front you were in offering this, right? Mm-hmm. Before, to your point, it was – I don't even wanna call it mainstreamed. I don't even think it's mainstreamed yet, but to your point, it, it's more common. Folks have more of an analysis and understanding around it. But what you said earlier about how there's a criticism of it that it's exclusionary, yeah, right? That I've heard like, we're just segregating further um, or separating further and that's not the direction that we wanna be going in. Can you speak to like why affinity spaces are so essential to yeah. our healing?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we're all together, those who are most marginalized and targeted in our world experience microaggressions. And um, surely we contribute to a space and make it better because we're there. But is it for our own betterment? um, Or is it to improve the lives of the more privileged people? Um, So I think that's part of it. Like
1: tokenism.
0: Yeah. And that like my and like
1: diversity in quotations, you exactly.
0: know. Exactly. Like diversity has been known to um, benefit white people. <laughs> and when we That's talk right. about diversity, we're talking about inclusion of BIPOC people in predominantly white spaces for the benefit of white people and white consumption of BIPOC identity right. and culture. That's right.
1: That's right. Say it.
0: And so the same thing with, with queerness. Um, and, you know, there's stuff within our own communities that we need to work out there's, there's ways that we've internalized oppression that we play out all over each other. And, um, we don't need an external gaze in working that out, you know? Um, so having affinity spaces helps our own communities be healthier. Um, and then we can like hold each other. Like so many times I've, I've taught class a couple of days after the Orlando shooting, I've taught class when someone was, um, harassed on the way, on the subway, on the way to class. I've held class when someone got a Lambda Literary Award, you know, like there's just like moments that are like specific to queer community that having this regular gathering space that is about embodiment and heartfelt allows us then to be with the joys and the sorrows in a really full and complete, beautiful way.
1: Do you, do you think there's a need or value in, I'm just thinking about you know um this analogous to like white caucus spaces where white people are working with one another to hold each other accountable right and to like expose and excavate deep internalized superiority and and there's a lot of that work happening so as not to like um burden right and extract the labor right nice. of of people of color but but also um to not cause harm, right? It's a harm reduction strategy. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering for like het people, like, do you like want f- folks to gather and like do their fucking work <laughs> so that <like laughs> you don't have to be in the position constantly of being like, oh my God, I'll say it what, for the millionth time again, you know, please use pronoun. Like, do you want folks to like go get your people, do your work? Like, yeah. do you see a value in
0: that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've seen men's spaces particularly transform over the last 10 years from being about grappling with male privilege to then also grappling with cishet privilege. And I think that's really important. I haven't seen that as much as with women's identified spaces.
1: Yeah. That's what I'm like
0: realizing as we're talking. I'm like,
1: huh, where is this?
0: Yeah. And I think that's because of the trauma of misogyny and sexism, that it's really scary to consider opening up women's spaces to trans women, especially. Um, And there is a way um, that trans women were socialized as boys. And so like, there is a difference there between folks socialized as, as, as girls and socialized as boys and the like experience of trauma of, like growing up in a trans body or growing up with a trans identity that's either seen or not seen either way is difficult. Um, and so it like it adds some texture to women's faces in particular that I don't know is all like women's faces are always ready to grapple with because of the trauma of misogyny and sexism that women have had to deal with their whole lives.
1: And yet like, and I know you, you have, um, you know, been fiercely committed to holding space for these kinds of conversations, like that level of complexity. I mean, I wanna just say like that level of complexity is in every room, right? That level of nuance that you're talking about, like there are no like pure, <laughs> you know, p- like affinity spaces. And and I feel like what y- you're inviting us to do is actually hold that complexity. Yeah. Not to deny it, right? Not to demand pure purity or a clean line, like there is no nothing like that. That <laughs> nothing like that exists anymore. And so, like, what does it look like for us to lean into the, the complexity, right, of sharing space and examining, right, what, what has been internalized um, in cishet bodies and what what is um whenever I do any kind of affinity space as like a person with a lot of proximity to power and privilege, I'm always like What do you want? What is the work you want us to do? Like, that's like my first question, right? Because I know that when white people or privileged people go off and try to do their work out of relationship or out of accountability, they often make a fucking mess or they often reenact the same power dynamic. Like they know what's good for everybody. You know what I mean? So I think I'm like trying to like to embody that here when I ask, like, what do you want like folks with cishet privilege to be grappling with in those spaces?
0: I write about in my book how it's so important to have those relationships across difference. And I I write about um, a few models of that from the Letters from Young Activists book uh, Mm -hmm. from 2005 and then in Challenging Male Supremacy uh, project, um, that both had Mm -hmm. accountability partners that were like formal asks of community members, um, who were not otherwise represented in the leadership of the program or the editors of the book. And, um, they asked them to, and sometimes Mm -hmm. were awarded with, with payment for their time and labor and Mm -hmm. resources and experience, right. It's really important. Um, but we're asked to point out like, what are we missing? Um, So I think those like formal relationships are so important. And also just like Mm -hmm. signing yourself up for the newsletters of groups that you're not part of, Mm -hmm. like the national queer Asian and Pacific Islander Alliance, um, things like that, where you're like, whoa, I don't, I don't know any queer Asian, it's queer API people. Part of how I do the work before even meeting one is to like, hear what they're saying, like they're already saying it in a professional and public way. Can I just tune into it and recognize where mm-hmm. the things I'm not hearing, the things that I'm not privy to, there's so many ways to, to do that without actually having the person do the education for you.
1: And you write about this in your book, the humility that's required to like being a constant stance of like, I don't know what I don't know. And so like, I better like lean back and listen and learn.
0: Yep. Yep. And forgiving yourself for that, that like you've been given. But that I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What, <laughs> you what, what is that F
1: word you just used?
0: <laughs> Forgiveness. That part's
1: hard. <laughs> yeah. That part's really hard. Oh, um, that's like a whole other can of worms. But yeah, it's like, um, and I feel like your book really held this tension beautifully of like we need to be critical. Like we need to be critical. Like your book was critical. My favorite part of your book, as you know, is the Queering Yoga section. And it's deeply critical and I fucking love that because that's, you know, that's sort of you know my my dance in the wellness world also. And I've struggled with the compassionate wing to that. That um that if you're not if you don't meet the critical interrogation um, and not even interrogation of the self, like the interrogation of others and, and of the system with like some compassion Mm -hmm. for like, you wrote about this too, which I really love that, like, you know, acknowledging that people are in a different, all people are in a different place in their, in their journey of learning and developing. Right. And that Mm -hmm. I think often in woke culture and I'm, you know, like, air quotes, we, we like are demanding people to be in a place where they're not. Um, and so I just, I want to acknowledge that, that you wrote about that and it, it landed in my body deeply around, like, I have, I have work to do around that. You know, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not gentle with myself and therefore often I'm not gentle with others.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then ultimately what happens is we shrink our movements. Right, which then means we become less impactful, and if we're busy fighting each other, then who wins but the system?
1: Mm. Yeah, and it's making me think also of like how how um how it's destroyed relationships for me. Like the sh- the smalling down and the shrinking back, mm-hmm. the isolation that comes with that pulls me out of relationship with people, which is like you know it feels like a really big cost.
0: Yeah. And there can be such, such guidance and mentoring that we can give to people Mm -hmm. that are like, just entering, like, social justice consciousness, you know, like, there's so many moments, like, um, Occupy Wall Street was a moment, the Trump years were a moment, last summer, uh, the Freedom Summer was a moment of like, especially more and more white folks waking up to their privilege and like grappling with racism and white supremacy and um, I think it's so important to rather than like judging them, where have you been <laughs> um, to greet them with like, thank God you're here. We have, we got to get dirty. We have work to do.
1: I want to add to that. And for the love of God, don't leave. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? like, like, this is not a moment. This is forever. Every day people are, you know, but yeah, you're right. And I, um, and I definitely am guilty of, like, where the hell have you been, right? As if, like, I've been perfect my whole life, you know what I mean? And, <laughs> right. like, I spent – you know, I talk about this a lot in the book. Like, I spent, you know, 30, 25, 30 years of my life, like, choosing to not see what mm-hmm. was right in front of me until I could no longer unsee it, right? So it's right. like – so I just want to acknowledge that too. And I would imagine that, like, some of that fierceness comes from my own shame, right, yeah. that I – that I was like, I cho- I really think that's like, it's willful. There was willful negligence in my life for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I, I appreciate you always pushed me to do this, the way in which you're like, where where it's hot, Carrie, like you should look at that. Exa- <laughs> examine, you know, the, the places where you want to like go all out and rage on people because it's often alive in you.
0: And I think that's one of the benefits I, I feel like for queerness is that I know what oppression feels like. And so therefore it's easier to identify it along the lines of race or along the lines of class or along the lines of, of disability. Like there's so many moments where queer folks have, have showed up for other communities. Um, you know, like I'm thinking of, uh, there, uh, there was a minor strike in England in the 1950s or maybe more recent than that. There's a whole movie made about it. And um, queer folks showed up And then what happened, you know, over time with these like rural, really homophobic minors is that they became allies because queer folks showed up for them. And so then what happened is the queer folks drew more people into their work.
1: I heard this amazing podcast. You're just making me think about it. Um, I can't remember who it was, but it was a queer activist who, who, um, um, was really engaged and involved in, um, the AIDS movement and the act up work who was showing up in response to COVID because he was like, we understand what it is to lose people every day, to deal with like immense and unimaginable collective grief. Um, right. Like how, how can we be in solidarity with communities who are, who are losing so much right now? Um, and I remember that stuck with me in the way that you're naming. Yeah. That kind of like shared loss, shared struggle, despite coming from completely different lived experiences, right? Totally. Like united in the in the struggle.
0: Totally. Whenever I'm in a yoga space or retreat space or anything, I, I look for the folks of color in the room because as I know that folks of color also look for the folks of color in the room, but I know that we have um that we're gonna to be touched by oppression in that space and mm-hmm just wanting to like identify like, okay, this person's over there. When she speaks, I want to really pay attention Um, or Mm -hmm. um, just knowing through experience that those are the folks that I often find the most in common with because we have a a shared proximity to social justice movements um, Mm -hmm. and our people have that proximity to, to movements and shared experience of oppression in different spaces.
1: I just want to say that I look for that not now too, as someone who benefits in those spaces. Um, I I think because when a room actually isn't representative, if I I assume that it's going to be delusional. Oh. Like I assume that like a big I, I just like have never said that out loud before, but I actually think that's true for me that like and I know that's judgment and assumption. I want to say that. And I think it's also true for exactly the reason that you're saying, that when you don't have people in a space with, like, a lived experience of being, like, excluded, oppressed, you know, exploited, um, under-resourced, then, like, you're actually not having the whole conversation, Like, something essential is missing from, especially in the context of yoga and wellness, a conversation about wholeness. I mean, come on. We're having conversations about wholeness and missing an entire, um, you know, segment of the community and and an essential perspective.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how do those spaces where we're we're all in the same space, like I think of the -the off-the-mat trainings that we've both been in, like, how do we share space like that in a way that doesn't inflict further harm on Mm -hmm. folks that are already targeted it's really tricky and i've seen off the bat in particular improve on that and like do it over and do this differently and revise and revise and revise to like hopefully not make the same mistakes twice out of a depth of practice right and it's it's really hard
1: there's this great book called winner takes all by um Anand Giridharadas. And it's a book about power in philanthropy and change work. It's a really powerful book. But one of the things that he said um, that really changed me is he said, um, it's less important that people are more good. It's more more important that people do less harm. And I was like, that's it right there. Right. Like and it and also like helped heal all my like good be a good girl stuff that I grew up around. And that like is also pervasive, right? In white people trying to do um, you know, anti racism work. It's like, don't try to be more good, right? Like, because often people doing good and being good, we can look back to the, like the whole history of missionary service and white saviorism. Mm-hmm. Has wreaked a ton of havoc and harm, yeah. right? Um, especially on communities in the global south. It's like, how do I be in a constant inquiry and stance of like, do less harm, do less harm, do less harm, do less yeah. harm? <laughs> Am I doing less harm right now? How can I do less harm? Yeah. Like, I can't do yeah. no harm because I'm human. Being human with other humans but it's like, how can I be in a, like a nonstop inquiry about that? Yeah,
0: and it's intent. Versus impact, right, which is often a a guideline we have in our social justice spaces, attending to impact, while also, for me, honoring the intent, like, I assume that you are good. (laughs) You don't have to prove that to me, Carrie, and (laughs) let's, let's, let's talk about what you just said.
1: It's only half of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work. Especially in a moment when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities in our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 per month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com/slash citizenwell. Know it when you
0: see it. Know it when you see it.
1: Okay, so your book, I feel like this is a great segue, um, is called A Queer Dharma: Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. So my first question is: what is a queer dharma?
0: It's a practice that interrogates systems of power and Seeks liberation for all, individual and collective liberation, um, an uplift of all of us, and attending especially to folks that are the most impacted by systems of oppression that have overlapping targeted identities.
1: And I want to ask this question for the sake of appropriation, because I I'm wondering if people are gonna be wondering, like, is this a book for me if I'm not if I don't identify as queer. Or can I be engaged in a queer dharma if I'm not queer? Like what, like, so how, how should folks navigate
0: that? I think as an inquiry, right? Like so often you're fed a straight dharma and you don't realize it. It's not marked as (laughs) such.
1: Oh my God. I love that. (laughs) A fucked up straight dharma. (laughs) Who wants that?
0: Um, So, I mean, I think, I think of one of my dear friends, this, um, white straight head man from who lives in Brooklyn. Um, who's, he's as queer as I am. Like he, he is at all the <laughs> queer parties. He's down for all the queer causes. He has <laughs> best friends that are trans and, you know, like he's partnered with a woman of color and, um, so I I think it's also about like how do you locate yourself and it's the difference between what's queer and what's LGBT, right. Which is like the difference between self identity. And as I say in the book, like queer is a political commitment and a political identity as well to be anti-oppressive in in the world. And um, I think that's part of why I've been uh, unwelcome or shunned from different yoga spaces. is because I've had that political identity and not just wanting to like be accepted or be included, but I want the whole layout of the studio to be turned upside down. Yes. That's why
1: I love you. <laughs> well, and I just want to acknowledge, um, cause I love your spirit in that way. And I want to acknowledge how much risk that requires,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, like to like speak truth to power and be like, this is not okay. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge you in that. Cause I've seen you do yeah. that a number of times, um, and not take no for an answer and, and there are consequences. People have to understand, like, I feel like, especially when I'm like talking to privileged folks and they're like, I want to disrupt. I'm like, be prepared Mm -hmm. to like deal with the consequences. Cause if you're not, you're going to actually default and you're going to get scared or you're going to choose you know, yep. your privilege over risk and you have to yep. be ready to like yep. risk and face the consequences. And I, I've seen you do that over and over and over again. And, and it's different for me to do that than for you to do that. I want to be clear yep. based on our location. So I just want yep. to like, appreciate your courage yeah, and commitment to all of us, right. In doing that.
0: Yeah. I also, I think about like the queer folks who are going to teach in a space after me, you know, even like a decade after me who never even Mm. maybe knew that I was there, but how can I leave it cleaner than I found it? How can Mm -hmm. I leave it safer for them more um, anticipating their needs than Mm -hmm. it was for me? Mm -hmm. And I've, when I can open to an institution and and give them opportunity to change of like, say like, yo, this hurts, or this is wrong. I need this to change. And, welcome, whatever response. Sometimes this response is like, fuck you. Like, I don't want to, why are you even bringing this up? Why are you Mm -hmm. harshing on my yum? And, and sometimes like even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, someone is like leans in and is like, Oh, tell me more. And those are the moments where like, I, that builds trust instantly that like I've pointed out something that you're not missing and you're curious rather than defensive
1: yeah. Mm. Um, so of course, my my favorite part of this book is um, the Queering yoga section, um, which is a fierce and critical analysis of how modern yoga is indoctrinated in like the toxic culture and systems of capitalism and individualism and colonialism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And you talk in the book about how we're not living our yoga; we're just selling it. What, what does it mean to, to live our yoga in the context of the world that we live in?
0: <sighs> I mean, if we just take the very first practice of yoga, the yamas, as far as we can take them, that will upend capitalism, right? Because aparigraha, non-greed, whereas capitalism wants more, 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 more. Um, satya, truthfulness and transparency, whereas capitalism knows it's to the it's advantage to hide the truths and who hide the true costs of the system of capitalism or, a uh, himself rec- recognizing all of the communities that have had their resources taken from them. Um, and then, and then, and then sold. Um, and at the same time, like yoga is a multi million, multi-billion dollar industry. It makes money. And so, uh, you know, I see it, <laughs> my partner laughs whenever we're like watching a movie or TV show and there's like a display of yoga, you know, on the screen, I'm just like, no, not, yeah. like one, you're not doing that asana. Right. And two, like, who cares if you can do warrior two, like you're not kind. <laughs> that's not yoga.
1: Yeah, that's right. Like you can put your leg behind your head, but you can still be an asshole. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> How I think this is my, cause like, you know, And you and I have talked immensely about this. And I want to name this because I actually think this particular thing um, is one of the things holding wellness back from being a transformative um, community or, you know, journey or um, movement one of the things I think folks can't wrap their heads around is that is sort of that we are living our yoga and selling it at the same time. And what I mean by that is that, like, we're trying to disrupt capitalism and yet we're deeply s- situated in it still. Right. Right. Like the, it's like a, it's an absolute contradiction. Right. Um, yeah. And and it's a paradox. Right. And I, and I think wellness often sells us a myth and I'm saying wellness like to encompass all of the modalities that are sort of in that industry, if you will, right, yeah. what you just named, the $4.5 trillion global industry. One of the myths it sells people for the sake of simplicity and, and I think binary thinking is that we can escape. We can escape capitalism, um, we can escape um, um, climate change if we just build a net zero house. We can escape capitalism if we have a practice of gratitude and enoughness, um, or if we give money to a charity. You know, um, we can escape white supremacy if, you know, we go on social media and use woke language. Um, you know what I'm saying? I'm like being facetious, but I actually literally think that that you know, that our inability, this is where spiritual practice feels so essential to hold the contradiction of like, yes, we want to fuck up capitalism. And yes, you are still deep. You're still situated inside of it and benefiting from it and participating in it. How do we, how do we grapple with that um part? Right. I just want to like, that's hard, you know, yeah. and, and, and I get like tripped up by folks who are like really hypocritical and and then I have to be like, oh no, I'm a hypocrite all the time in that i'm 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 living a double life. Okay. And to admit I'm not living a double life actually feels like the lie.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Does that make sense? A double yeah. life in that like, I'm, I'm, I have to pay my rent and I'm engaged in capitalism and I go to Whole Foods, you know Uh what I mean? And, and, um, I'm, and I'm deeply committed politically to like fucking up those systems and dismantling them and imagining something better. Yeah. And, and we have to hold those things at the same time and that's hard for folks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where interdependence becomes so important and, um, Mm -hmm. kind of destroying the idea of individualism and that like your liberation can be created just by you yourself going to Whole Foods or going on a yoga retreat or, you know, taking an amazing herb or getting an amazing acupuncture treatment. Like it's not, <laughs> it's going to be whole systems change and that's going to take your whole life and and then some. well beyond. Like we, it took 500 years to get in this mess. It's going to take us 500 years to get out of this mess. And so then how do we set up the next generation to do even more change. And then the next generation after that to do, to, you know, help us regain balance and equity and, and justice. Um, and knowing that, yeah, we have to, we have to make ends meet. And I hope, you know, in my, in my weekly newsletter, I feature a social justice organization that's doing pertinent work at the time. And, um, part of why I include that in the newsletter is so that, you know, whoever's paying attention to me will also pay attention to that, you know, organization that they'd never heard of likely. Um, and therefore, and, and I always dedicate, um, 10% of my weekly income to that organization. And then, you know, so I'm not just like asking my students like to donate, but I'm participating that, in that too mm-hmm. as a way. And I, I think of this truly as reparations, like shifting mm-hmm. where resources go um, over and over again. And as someone in a white body, like there can, I can never repay that enough. What's been stolen mm-hmm. to grant me my life. Mm-hmm. What's been, mm-hmm. you know, whose labor my own ancestors built their livelihood mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I just started paying a land tax. Yes. Um, that like, cause I was like, you, cause I think one of the things that you're, you're making me think critically about is how we have to go beyond philanthropy, Right, Like it's like like how do we restructure our lives and our livelihood so that we're contributing to like the redistribution of power, like that kind of thing. It's like yeah. – so it's like, it's like it's more than like – it's more than like a GoFundMe pops up and you're like – even though like folks should do that, that's like important and, and that, you know, is a part of mutual aid and how we relate to one another. And I'm like, okay, what are the things I can be st- – like structurally designing in my life or like structurally giving up. Uh Um, I struggle with this with yoga because, you know, I haven't taught at a studio or (laughs) taken money for yoga in a really long time. And then I was like, oh shit, I have to pay my bills. Right. So it's like, and, and by the way, I miss teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, Like yoga has, right. I had to like go through like a whole cycle of like, oof, Um, I miss that part in my life. And I sort of like, Abandoned it because uh-huh. I was like, I'm a white lady, and I can't contribute to the appropriation, right? and the commodification of um of the wisdom, right and um and culture of um Southeast Asian peoples. Like I was just like, I can't do that, so I'm just going to stop entirely. And I and in some ways, um, I actually don't think I did a good enough job of holding the paradox because uh-huh. I just was like, I just was like, ah bad harm don't do it give it all away right totally. and now i'm in this new place to to your point of like okay but wait a minute like i actually i have to actually figure out a way to live um mm-hmm. you know in relationship with like these things and so like what does that look like what is like the messier you know navigation look like versus yeah. like the binary like i will just reject that now
0: totally and you know you could boycott teaching yoga and the harm of the yoga industry would continue. Like that doesn't actually stop. Totally. What do you
1: mean?
0: <laughs> and that's part you of what my I talk about act? in the, in the chapter on cultural appropriation, right. Is that I've seen so many white folks, um, abandon teaching yoga and some folks, I, I think that that's the right thing. And I think. We need more anti-racist white people everywhere in every institution, including in yoga in the U S and, um, there's going to be people that connect with you because of who you are in your body. There's going to be connect people that connect with me because of who I am in my body. And if we can be aligned and um, teaching for justice, then that's going to serve the whole, you know, that's going to serve what, what BIPOC folks are trying to do and what disabled yogis are trying to do and, and fat yogis and stuff. If we're like in deep alliance with each other and still, in our own lane and doing the thing that we can do and making the impact we can abandoning the whole system. Like, that's not going to like, where are you going to go and what you going to, what are you going to do? That's not actually going to well, create right. harm.
1: And you can't get away from it. Right. That's sort yeah. of like what I was saying about like the myth is like, nice try, Carrie, right. <laughs> you know, like, um, what you were just saying about, um, you didn't say this, but what I, what I heard and understood in my body was like, um, we need everybody (laughs) and right. We need everybody in this work and in this movement, like the movement is an ecosystem and people have different roles and responsibilities to play given where they're located. And also the way in which the impacts of these dynamic systems of oppression have landed disproportionately on different bodies. Right. Like that means like your work and my work are different. Um, but we need both the, like, I hear you saying like, we need, the work of everyone who's committed, right, to this, like, ideology or of, of interdependence, who understands that, like, our destiny... I mean, like, I don't know how anybody can deny this at this point. Like, our <laughs> destiny is bound. We are, like, heading, like, fast and furiously for extinction. We have very little time to turn the car around, and it will take all of us. Um, so it's so funny, you know, to that folks are still, like, are still in total denial of that fact when in okay. fact the evidence is everywhere right the evidence of our interdependence is like all around us yeah and so i think my question to you um is around how we find our place in the movement and and what it looks like and this goes back to the question to the point you were making before about how the hard part <laughs> is that like we need to work together right not all the time right there's like affinity work that we can be doing. And there are times where we're gonna to need to be in the room together right. or we're gonna to need to be working across lines of difference towards shared goals, whether that's around climate change, whether that's around saving, you know, and restoring our democracy. What what do you what do you think is the practice of that? And how do we I, I feel like not we're not talking about this part enough of like, you know, what I'm saying of like we like we need a collective, you know, I'm like obsessed with this. We need like a collective organizing effort to, to, if we, if we stand a chance against massively ingrained systems and structures, mm-hmm. right, that are rooted in theft mm-hmm. and, and, and supremacy and scarcity, um, and separation. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think is like the near, I'm, I'm getting like, technical but like the narrative and the strategy mm. of like how we be together in this shared moment and in this shared like movement i don't mean like that literally but like move to, moving towards change um that hopefully will will you know slow down the the Um, imminent destruction of our planet and maybe ensure our collective survival like what is that story
0: i'm thinking of a really old article from the 1970s by bernice johnson reagan that my partner teaches in her very first class of gender studies every semester coalition politics which is about Mm -hmm. uh being willing to, to go out there and, and find where you overlap, like whether it's uh, queer folks showing up for the minors in England um, because they deserve <laughs> workers' rights. Um, so doing that coalition work towards, towards a shared goal um, and knowing that in that work we can leverage different privilege Um, so knowing what privilege you're bringing that you can leverage and, and taking direction from folks that are not like you who are from folks that are directly impacted. So you're using it in the most impactful way, um, stopping the most harm. (laughs) Um, and then the other part of Bernice's, um, article is having these spaces of home, having spaces Mm -hmm. where there's no performance, there's no, you can be messy as hell. You can mess up your racism, your transphobia can can fly, and people will like hold you with compassion in it and like help you shift gears. Um, that we need both spaces, and we grow in both spaces, right? Like we're really we get really re- depleted if we don't have um, those spaces of of home where we can be full, and we, and we um, there's there's less inspiration, there's less material to work with unless we do that um, engagement over over through difference.
1: What you're describing reminds me. The first part of what you were describing reminds me a bit of what Barbara Smith um, um, and others wrote about in the Combahee River Collective, right? right. Um, which you know is like whenever every conversation always leads back to just follow Black queer feminists and totally. we'll be we're all going to be okay. Totally, Black feminism <laughs> um, is the way. <laughs> And I know that you wrote about the Compiègne River Collective in your book, and I wrote about them too. As like a like, when in doubt, just remember that part. <laughs> um, when we're like, what do we do now? Like, just go back to the like original text of this like essential document that basically was like, y'all, here's the way. Right. And my mentor Taj James always says like, follow the people who know the way, uh-huh. right? And and it's like one of my favorite things to to center now is like, who knows the way, uh-huh. right? Um, who knows the way to survival? Who knows the way to inclusion, right? Who knows the way to um, um, radical expression and agency, right? Who knows the way to self-determination, right? Not white people, not white cishet, you know, um, non-disabled people typically because they've always been centered and always have gotten what they've wanted, right? So yeah, I
0: was going to say, unless those straight cishet white folks that have been in deep relationship <laughs> with yeah. with- folks that are embedded in, in the most targeted identity. E-
1: Even so I want to just ask like a person like that. I just want to say like, and like check the, like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like I Your original source, you know? Yeah. Like are those, are, are folks yeah in accountable relationship and, mm-hmm. um, what do you think is like the most essential practice? You know, I just like want to bring it back to what I feel like your book is about, which is it's like, we can do all these things and like, what are we practicing? Like, who are we being together? What do you feel like is like the most, and your book is full of practices, I just want to name that, like so many ways to engage mm-hmm. and explore a lot of the critical questions that you're posing to us. What do, you, what do you hope that folks remember or integrate into their everyday as a way for us to move in that direction?
0: I think it really depends on where someone's at. Um, The first part of my book is about the heart teachings. And then I also include uh, letting go and forgiveness and working with anger because that inevitably comes up. So Mm -hmm. I think those seven practices of letting go, working with anger, um, forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, like they are useful at different times for different people. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if you're stuck in, if, if, your community has just been decimated. Like working with anger is really important way before you ever get to forgiveness or equanimity. Like you need to let that move through you or else it's going to come out the side of your neck. (laughs) Um, And if you've been able to like digest some of what's impacted your community or what's broken your heart in our world, um, I really think forgiveness is so important right now. It's, it's so hard And um, because of the harms, the ongoing harms of our world and the huge historical traumas that built this very country. Um, And that I hope that truth and reconciliation becomes a part of what happens on Turtle Island in a large way, but we can also um, by engaging forgiveness in small circles um, and then rippling that outwards, we can also not wait for the government to do it, but but do it ourselves and find our way to be able to work with each other, right? Like if I've done my own healing around transphobia and you've done your own healing about around cis privilege, then we're going to meet each other in a much gentler, uh, trust, trusting way. Mm.
1: I love that. I just want to appreciate you so much for, um, well, not just like the wisdom of this book and the wisdom of what you always bring to the spaces that you're in, but also the way, um, the way in which I always feel like I can be my whole self with you, you know, and I can also like expose the parts of me that are like questioning and that are ashamed and that are making mistakes and that are fucking grappling, um, and it's just a testament to what a strong facilitator and leader you are that mm-hmm. you can hold people in their full humanity um, as they work through their own change. and And I hope I hope that comes through in this podcast. I think it will. Thank you so much, Carrie.
0: Yes, I am. I am.
1: While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to resist the straight and dominant story that we've been fed and embrace a queer dharma, a practice that interrogates systems of power and seeks liberation for all. To buy Jacoby's book, go to jacobyballard.net and to learn from and follow Jacoby's work, check out at Jacoby Ballard on Instagram. Special shout-out to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. To our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter, And big gratitude to the amazing team at Citizen Well that is bringing our mission to life. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Play and share the love y'all by telling your friends to check us out.